invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Acts. Uh, the passage just read for us, uh, portions of chapter 17, is where we'll be uh, walking together uh, this morning. Uh, this is a, a festive season called Eastertide in the life of the church. And we, this morning we turn our attention to uh, the Apostle Paul as he preaches in Athens. Uh, he was mocked and he was dismissed because he was preaching an Easter sermon. He was preaching Christ and Him crucified and risen. Um, it's, is it a new teaching for these people? Is this a, a foreign divinity that Paul is, is declaring here? As Paul declares Jesus, it's clear that he's, Jesus is exploding any categories conceived by that people. And in the preaching of God's word in this way, that his ambassadors are being uh, rejected. And yet we see the gospel continue uh, to advance, whether it be in the synagogue or in the marketplace, uh, Jesus' victory was being declared and His victory was transforming lives. We this morning are invited into that same mission to carry that same message to a confused and broken world and for strength and courage to do just that. Will you join me uh, with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that uh, Your Word is living and active. As we attune our hearts and minds to your word, would you conform us more into the image of your dear Son, according to your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit. Soften our hearts, our minds, and open our ears that we would receive from you all that you have for us and be responsive that we might obey Christ and his word all of our days. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The life of Jesus is being lived through the lives of His disciples. That's the theme of the book of Acts, and that's the theme of the church of Jesus Christ, His body. See, Jesus, risen and ascended, is building His kingdom in this world upon the foundation of living stones. Our task as living stones is to simply make ourselves available that we might bear witness faithfully and to Christ. Now, serving Jesus, it, it can be joyful, it can be adventurous, it can be challenging, it can even be fun. Serving Jesus can also be heart-wrenchingly difficult, painfully disappointing, seemingly hopeless. But, Christian, hear this. In following Jesus, we are simply called to make ourselves available to share in His work of reconciling all things to God through His gospel, that is, through the good news of Jesus and His victory. In the book of Acts, we have Paul traveling over the Mediterranean Sea a little bit, and he's crossed over into Macedonia. He's been bearing fruit in Philippi, Lydia and company returning to Jesus. A jailer was saved by mercy and grace, his family as well. But... As they journey on to Thessalonica, much persecution hounds them as it did in Philippi. They're plagued in Thessalonica by a rabble of Jews who then chase them out of Thessalonica down to Berea. And that same rabble of Jews continues to follow them down to Berea until they are made to leave Berea as well. Well, except for Silas and Timothy stay in Berea for a little while to encourage and exhort the followers of Jesus there. But Paul goes down to Athens. Paul goes further south to the co near the coast, 
And Paul enters into the city that is basically a museum to the, to the Greek philosophy, to Greek polytheistic worship. That is the city of Athens. Now, we don't know how much time elapses, but as Paul is in Athens for a time, he recognizes the work is vast, and so he calls for, for Silas and Timothy to leave Berea to come and join him in Athens. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Help is on the way, yet Paul must stand on his own for a season. Though our circumstances seem remote or of an infinite distance from where Paul finds himself here, uh, we too recognize in this season of history, we, we know isolation and loneliness. We know what it is to follow Jesus among a people who seem to care little for Christ and His body. As Paul is in Athens, it says Paul is provoked by what he sees. That is, his heart is, is warmed both in anger and in ardent desire to see truth prevail, to see the right worship being given to the rightful king and not to false gods and goddesses, but rather to the only true God. And it strikes me as we see Paul's approach to this people, we see Paul not only observing well, patiently, but he then enters in the lives of the people and the place where God has them. He says every day he's in the synagogue, every day he's in the marketplace. How well do we observe the realities of our friends and neighbors in their daily life? How well could we articulate their ideas, their approach to life, their daily loves? Are we willing to enter into their lives where they dwell? Are we willing to invite them into our place and the patterns of our lives? See, as was his normal pattern, Paul enters the synagogue on a regular basis here in Athens. But he also enters the marketplace. The first synagogue here is, is it the, the first place is saturated with, with God-ordained blood of atonement, while the other is uh, saturated with blood of idol service. But in both these temples of synagogue and, and marketplace, Paul speaks the same to their ears, strange message. Jesus crucified and raised to reign as king forever. And this talk of resurrection really sets the crowd astir. So Luke writes this in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in, in nothing except telling and hearing something new. These people would fit well in our society today, wouldn't they? Some of the hearers listen to Paul and they're like, they call him a babbler. They mock his teaching while others, they remain they're curious, they're hungry to hear more, to have their ears perhaps tickled a bit. The picture I got when I was reading this portion here is, is Luke is giving us the picture that, that this crowd is constantly checking their Twitter feed, you know. They're scrolling Fox News or maybe they're scrolling CNN. Look out, who are these people? They're looking for a discovery or maybe they're just looking to pick a fight. They want some new news. Now, I'm guessing that for what follows, few of us will feel comfortable being in Paul's sandals here. 
nor find ourselves, we probably won't find ourselves situated in a context like his, but there are principles in his speech, in his approach that we invest in every day of our lives. So take heart. Jesus is still living through the lives of his disciples. And he says to us simply, be available. Enter the lives of friend and neighbor and bear witness to Christ. Be available. Enter the lives of your friends and neighbors and bear witness to Christ. Verse 22 and following. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now that's an opening right there. You can just see the crowd. I see you're religious in every way. Hear, hear. I see you're devout. You've got gods and goddesses, idols everywhere. Yes, that's right. I'm going to declare to you the unknown God. Ooh, let's hear more. Hearers that called him babblers, now listen up. In speaking on this hill, this hill that was for the gathering of philosophers and, and civic rulers of the day, what we see Paul doing is he's crossing a bridge to stand on common ground with the people who differ from him dramatically. He opens with a topic that is common to all humanity. He hits on the, the, the note of, of the desire within us to worship. See, statues of gods and goddesses saturated Athens. There was space on every corner to give obeisance and oblation to some deity, even those not yet known by name, just to cover our bases, right? We may not have statues or temples in our city or our state, unless one counts sports stadiums or billboards or advertisements, things like that, which is possible. But the desire to bow the knee to something or someone superior, it dwells within all of us. Jesus is lying for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a line that helps us identify what it is we bow down to. It helps us identify the idols that don't have statues in our own hearts. See, even those in our society, our friends that claim to be agnostic or atheistic, we see them giving their lives to higher purposes or callings, whether it be fighting racism, seeking justice in our court, our legal system. Maybe it's helping the poor. There's something outside of us, something higher that we're all drawn to. Paul, we who follow Jesus, we stand on common ground with our neighbor in our desire to worship. Though there is an aching chasm between what many worship and the worship of the true and risen Christ, we cannot be afraid like Paul to cross the bridge. Because we bear a message of victory over darkness, sin, and death. What are our friends, our neighbors giving their lives to? What are they conforming to? What are they bowing the knee to? And where does Christ satisfy his longing in their hearts for worship? It seems Paul's posture is so appropriate for us to take note of. He doesn't stand above his neighbor, continually condemning them for the false choices that they're making, and nor does he become a chameleon and just become another Athenian in this crowd of Athenians. No, he crosses a bridge to stand on common ground, the common ground of worship. And in that standing on common ground, he begins to declare to them this God who they have no name for. He says, you can worship this God because he... He can be known, verse 24 and 25. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He, Paul could say to them, you're Zeus, why he is powerful. Ah, you're Athena, you're Ares, these gods and goddesses, they are mighty in war. But the God I, Paul is proclaiming is the creator, the creator of everything. If Paul was to sing his sermon, it would seem like the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. The heavens are declaring His glory. See, no Mount Olympus could contain this God, let alone any earthly temples our meager hands could construct. But the God that Paul declares created all things and is therefore outside of all things. Other than He is beside them, He alone is God. And this God who created all things, how could we say that He's to be served by human hands as if He lacked something we could make up? He made our very hands. What could we offer up but He already gave us? I mean, look, if if this God created all things, including us, then everything we have, our very life, our very breath, is from Him. They are gifts from Him. And that's basically what Paul quotes in a little bit from some Greek poets You'll note Paul's methodology. He's not quoting Bible verses to them. He's quoting their own poets, saying, look, your poets bear witness to the God whom I am declaring. So what is it to simply give back our gift of gratitude to our great giver? It's an act of worship, absolutely. Is it a service that he needs? I don't think so. Verse 26 and following. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." So not only do we stand on common ground regarding the, the human desire to worship, uh, but we, have a com- we come from a common descent. The creator God, which this people has no name for, he forged a people out of dust. He named nations and he ruled kingdoms. And we all draw our existence from this one true God. We are indeed his offspring. Paul highlights these lines from two famous Greek poets who image forth this reality that he's speaking of. Paul and all who hear him now are given life and being in him. We are indeed his offspring. These lines about all descending from God himself or being his offspring, all of us, that God is not far from each one of us. It applies pretty well to our society today in a lot of ways. Our society has this reinvigorated desire to address very vocally sins of racism. And there's no other place to begin looking at equality and justice than the lines given here, that all of us, no matter color or creed, all humans are created by God, created in His very image, bearing infinite dignity and worth, that no lust for power, no insatiable uh, sense of greed can, for gain can, can change that reality. So it seems to have these conversations to address inequality, we must begin with a healthy, truthful 
image of God, that all bear this image of our Creator, shown forth in a pursuit of goodness and beauty and truth. And whatever it is that we worship, verse 27 tells us that desire, it, it describes it's a groping after, whether it be after the triune God or some other deity, some other idol, it's a groping after. It is a pursuit of God, and Paul latches on to that and says, hey, you're not far off. God is not far off from you. Whether it's fame and fortune, whether it's power and prestige, whatever idol we bow down before, it takes something good and true of God, yet it bends it inward. It's worship gone awry. So think about for the Jews, what that was like for them. The old covenant that they, they followed, the scriptures that they read, it was filled with this temple furniture, and yet the kingdom of God was, was dimly lit so that they stumble and they stub toe and they, they fall until Jesus, the light of the world, enters the picture, who took on flesh. And now Paul is saying, hey, the time of ignorance is gone, for the light of God is come. The old covenant lights are turned on all the way. Jesus has come as the way, the truth, and the life. We are accountable to him. All the Old Testament furniture of the, the temple pointed to him. Now, that's for the Jews in, in dwelling in darkness, groping after God by his command. But then also in the marketplace, this marketplace of, of mythology, of philosophies, of bowing down before gods and goddesses, Paul identifies this as a groping in the same kind of darkness as the Jews. They're seeking after the same way, the same truth, the same life. And Paul's conclusion for them is that it's God who is unknown to you. He's not far from each one of us. He has come as the way, the truth, and the light. He is not far from each one of us. Take heart, he is not far. Or heed the warning, he is not far. If this is true, then we today ask ourselves this. Am I helping my friend and my neighbor to move at least one step closer to the God who is so very near to each one of us? Affirming our common desire to worship, validating our common descent, Paul now challenges the folly of idolatry in verse 29 and following. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. True worship transcends the common. See the images of these idols made of, of gold, of silver, of stone. They are but representations of God who is spirit and truth. And therefore, to bow before idols made of our own imaginations and our own, the work of our own hands, Paul would say that is folly. Those are but pointers to the true and living God. He goes on to say, basically, look, this God that you don't have a name for, which I'm describing to you now, preaching to you now, this God has been very patient, so very, very patient. Nations have been raging, have been plotting in vain against this living God. Peoples have worshipped vain images. They've given honor and glory to the created things rather than the creator himself. And Paul directs his speech toward his audience. And he says this, all people everywhere they need to repent. We need to repent. And that's the gospel call 
to action. In the victory of Jesus, we must turn to the living God. As his ambassadors, as his witnesses, we're not called to run other people's lives, but we are called to call them to turn from rebellion, from idolatry, and to turn to the living God. Why? Because verse 31, as it says, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given, us, given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of this man that, that Paul is proclaiming is, is an assurance that God will judge. Paul has been declaring that, that God is coming as the judge. And now in light of this resurrection, that, that God raised this man from the dead, this assures us of a few things, says Paul. First of all, that God's patience is run out. And we must respond to his call in repentance to this one man whom he's raised from the dead. God's patience is run out. We now are accountable to this one who Paul declares. Secondly, that this God, whom you don't know by name, he will be, that he will judge all according to the life we've lived. Paul doesn't get into that too much, but it's clear that he says God is, this God is coming to judge. And thirdly, we see that judgment day, that the day of reckoning is upon us soon. God is not far from any of us. So this Easter season, we rejoice because our king is risen to judge the wicked and the dead and to raise us up as his body in his victory to share in his vindication in righteousness as he, the judge of the world, condemns wickedness and evil for all eternity. Now, as our lives bear witness to this, as our lips bear witness to this, Many will respond, as some do to Paul, but many will also reject. Verse 32 and following. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So the life of Jesus is being lived through the life of his followers. Like Jesus, Paul and company were being mocked and rejected as they bear witness faithfully to him. But they're also given another hearing. We'll hear you again on this strange message. Paul was taking the life of Jesus to places where Jesus never walked, to people Jesus never met, and there was fruit. If you look at Paul and Silas and Timothy and others, indeed, the harvest was plentiful. And we also see there was wheat amongst the tares and tares amongst the wheat. But here, there's even just a little bit of a harvest, a certain Dionysius. It's a man named after the god of, of the grape harvest, of a wine pressed out in celebration and joy. A Damaris is converted as well, a name which means powerful or overpowering. There's power in the gospel, transformative power, and the fruit abounds in its faithful proclamation. It's a fecundity of disciples yet to be harvested. And the message we hear from Paul and company today is this, to take heart, simply be available to the work of Christ in his kingdom, and bear witness faithfully to him and his victory. Mockery, disdain, and rejection will meet us at every corner 
with every crowd we are in. And then he says, take heart, be available, bear witness, and I will bring the harvest. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Paul willingly goes up to Antioch, throughout Galatia, to the coast of modern-day Turkey. Paul and company simply make themselves available. You want us to go over to Greece? Let's go, absolutely. You want me to bear witness in the face of persecution through Philippi, through Thessalonica, and to Berea? You bet, let's do it. And now on to Athens, a servant made available for God to use through abuse and through praise. God's servant willingly proclaims. Now the challenge is to present Christ faithfully and plainly. Scripture for whom those to whom Scripture speaks, Trinitarian philosophy to the philosophical minds, confronting rebellion and sin with the truth of resurrection life, all of these we see Paul endeavoring to do faithfully. And we who stand not before the Areopagus, but before neighbor and friend, we speak the same gospel with our lips and with our lives. Take heart, be available, and bear witness. May God bear fruit through our faithful witness to Christ and His resurrection for His glory, the good of His church, and for the life of the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a few moments in Your Word, and I pray Your living Word, Your active Word would transform us, that we would be willing to serve wherever You would call us to, and that You might indeed bear fruit in us and through us for the good of Your church and the life of the world. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.